three issues have muscled their way into this lecture. The first is the disproportionate suffering of women compared to men in Eliot's fiction. This has long been a source of feminist criticism of Eliot, as we'll consider in more detail in next week's lecture, which is on the history of responses to Eliot. The second is the possibility that the suffering women are in some sense being used as scapegoats. The third is the coexistence of these women's sufferings alongside happiness experienced by other characters and how the genres of comedy and tragedy may or may not be helpful in thinking about this. In other words, I am partly aligning myself with Wolf and other early second-wave feminists in observing a pattern. I'm not going to concentrate on finding an explanation, let alone a biographical or psychological explanation for this pattern, which requires a different kind of analysis to that I'm interested in giving in this lecture. But I am going to try and relate this pattern to one of Eliot's major preoccupations. How someone's happiness can or should be affected by their certain knowledge if they stop and think about it, that at any given moment other people in the world are experiencing misery. As I speak and as you listen, someone somewhere in the world is being tortured. Should that affect our level of ease as we sit here? Should it always? Should it on our birthday or when we're having sex? I'm certain that Eliot would have said, in all of those cases, yes. Wolf was one of the first to observe that Eliot's female characters failed to achieve as she did. She started writing fiction in the 1850s, the decade in which Florence Nightingale began to make nursing popular as a profession. From 1869, there existed female academics at Girton College, Cambridge, towards which Eliot made donations. And yet the only profession which the former professional editor and critic, Marianne Evans, allows her women is that of being a singer. Daniel Duranda's mother, Leonora Alcarizzi, is based on a real singer, Pauline Viador, Eliot's contemporary and friend, who managed to combine marriage and four children with a career as the most famous mezzo-soprano in Europe. For Alcarizzi herself, however, it seems that a family and a career are incompatible. She chooses the second and is therefore presented as a tragic figure. It might, of course, be argued that Eliot is being faithful to the ordinary female lot as opposed to the extraordinary female lot, such as that of herself or her friend Pauline. But even that commitment to realism doesn't quite account for the extent of her female character's suffering. As John Holloway points out, in her works, vice is always punished, virtue may or may not be rewarded, and modestly. What the critic Haynes calls Eliot's, I think it's on your handouts, characteristic double plot, the movement of sympathetic identification doubled by a retributive or punitive principle, is experienced particularly by women. Let's take a run through her fiction. Janet Dempster, she of Janet's Repentance, one of the three scenes of clerical life, suffers terrible brutality from her husband, Robert, yet is herself presented as in need of moral redemption because of her turn to alcohol and her initial failure to devote herself to others. Hetty Sorrell in Adam Bede is transported to Australia for leaving her baby to die. Maggie Tulliver is apparently endorsed by the narrative of The Mill on the Floss for deciding to spend the rest of her life in unwarranted disgrace and misery rather than hurt her two best friends by marrying the man she has half eloped with. Romola recovers from a disastrous marriage by spending her widowed life in the service of others, including her late husband's mistress and her two children by him. Fidalma in The Spanish Gypsy is forced to give up her chance of married happiness in order to become a leader of her people. 
Gwendolyn Harleth suffers miserably for a naive and selfish decision to marry and is abandoned by her, whole, by her sole spiritual supporter when he marries and emigrates. There are exceptions, of course. Dinah is finally allowed to believe that it is God's will that she marry. Dorothea gets her curly-haired will. And Rosamond Vincy finds happiness as the wife of an elderly and wealthy physician and considers this her just reward. For Myra in Daniel Deronda, duty and love are united in her marriage to Daniel. Lydia Galatia, in the same novel, lives to see her son inherit um, his father's wealth. In other words, she gets off lightly, considering that she has done exactly the same as Tolstoy's Anna Karenina in abandoning her husband and child for a glamorous younger man. And I should explain that Anna Karenina is exactly contemporary with Daniel Deronda, and Tolstoy was strongly influenced by Eliot and by Adam Bede in particular. His niece translated George Eliot's works into Russian. Still, it's often the case that the women suffer conspicuously, whereas the greatest villains whom Eliot creates, Robert Dempster, the wife-beater of Janet... Tito Malama, the multiple traitor in Romola, and Henle Malinga Grandcourt, the emotional and sexual sadist of Daniel Deronda, are all men. She does not do villainous women. Her most problematic women, Hetty Sorrell, Rosamond Vinci, Vinci and Leonora Alcarizzi, have sufficient, insufficient interest in the feelings of anyone apart from themselves to take any interest in hurting them. One reason why she demands more of women in terms of self-sacrifice is probably that she was, by the standards of today, an essentialist on the differences between men and women and considered women particularly gifted at self-sacrifice. Some critics also speculate that she was attempting to, cons- to compensate for her own scandalous behaviour living with a married man. But Eliot herself denounced narrative eschatology, that is, the allocation of rewards and punishments for good or bad behaviour by the narrative itself. Or, as Miss Prism puts it, when describing a three-volume novel of more than usually revolting sentimentality in The Importance of Being Earnest, the good end happily and the bad unhappily, that is what fiction means. In Eliot's 1855 defence of the morality of Wilhelm Meister, the work by Goethe, which was at that time controversial, this is also on your handouts, she wrote, Just as far from being really moral is the so-called moral denouement, in which rewards and punishments are distributed according to those notions of justice on which the novel writer would have recommended that the world should be governed if he had been consulted at the creation. The emotion of satisfaction which a reader feels when the villain of the book dies of some hideous disease or is crushed by a railway train is no more essentially moral than the satisfaction which used to be felt in whipping culprits at the cart tail. And this is important. Eliot does her best to deflect satisfaction at the suffering of her female sinners. Sometimes her narratives criticise the society, which helps to bring that suffering about. When Hetty's uncle disowns her for bringing shame on the family, this is attributed to strict social mores belonging to the late 18th century rural England, where the novel was set 60 years before it was written. Quote, the sense of family dishonour was too keen, even in the kind-hearted Martin Poyser, to leave any room for compassion towards Hetty. He and his father were simple-minded farmers, proud of their untarnished character, proud that they came of a family which held up its head and paid its way as far back as its name was in the parish register, and Hetty had brought disgrace on them all, disgrace that could never be wiped out. Dinah is endorsed by the narrative for feeling no such thing and for remaining with Hetty to the end. Although here too we can see a distribution of moral labour between the sexes. 
Child murder would still have carried the death penalty in 1859, but the narrator indicates his, and it's a his, his distaste of this punishment in describing the gallows as, quote, the hideous symbol of deliberately inflicted death. In The Mill on the Floss, the Society of St. Ogg's is presented as unjust and hypocritical in its condemnation of Maggie, who was, after all, not committed fornication with Stephen and who has renounced a man whom she loves out of a sense of duty. In the chapter called St. Ogg's Passes Judgment, the narrator acidically ventriloquizes what public opinion would have said if Maggie had, in fact, eloped with Stephen and returned as a married woman. I can think of no other passage in Eliot's fiction which so hisses with content, moral and intellectual. Mr. Stephen Guest had certainly not behaved well, but then young men were liable to these sudden infatuated attachments, and bad as it might seem in Mrs. Stephen Guest to admit the faintest advances from her cousin's lover, indeed it had been said that, he, that she was actually engaged to young Wakeham. Old Wakeham himself had mentioned it. Still, she was very young, and a deformed young man, you know, and young guests, so very fascinating, and they say he positively worships her. To be sure, that can't last. And he ran away with her in the boat, quite against her will. And what could she do? She couldn't come back then. No one would have spoken to her. And how very well that maize-coloured satinette becomes her complexion. As it happens, though, Maggie had returned without Trousseau, without a husband, in that degraded and outcast condition to which error is well known to lead, and the world's wife, with that fine instinct which is given her for the preservation of society, saw at once that Miss Tulliver's conduct had been of the most aggravated kind. Could anything be more detestable? Polite society fails again with Gwendolyn. She marries Grandcourt partly because her reverend uncle Gascoigne orders her to, despite the fact that he has heard highly plausible pub rumours of him having a family under the rose. Grandcourt is not just a good, he is a magnificent match. So the uncle chooses not to investigate these rumours further. It's worth here using a distinction made by the French Catholic critic René Girard, for those of you who haven't yet come across him, I strongly recommend him. In his book, Le Bout Emissaire, translated as The Scapegoat, 1986, he looks at the phenomenon of scapegoats in myth, history, and literature across time and space. Since he is, amongst other things, a Catholic propagandist, it is his argument that the unjust persecutions of individuals on behalf of groups is revealed progressively over time in human history, that his part of the book is part of that process, and that the ultimate scapegoat is Christ. He also makes a distinction which has been found of particular interest by literary critics between two kinds of scapegoat that can be found in a text – there are those who are shown to suffer in a way which well exceeds the demands of retributive justice. These are scapegoats in the text. And a good example would be Tess of the D'Urbervilles, that pure woman. Not just the novel's subtitle, but the narrative itself denounces her sufferings. <clears throat> the other type of scapegoat is found where the narrative seems to find a character's sufferings more just than the reader does. These are scapegoats of the text, as opposed to in the text. Girard gives the factual example of a transcript of a 17th century witch trial. The text's author apparently believes that the prisoner was justly tried, found guilty of witchcraft, and sentenced to death. Girard, in commenting on this, does not believe that she was a witch, because he does not believe such women exist or have existed, and therefore he finds her to be a scapegoat of the text in which she is described. This, <clears throat> this forms part of an argument against cultural relativism, for which his major example is Aztec culture. 
He is irritated by the pluralist, multiculturalist toleration of Aztec human sacrifice as just another way of doing things and contrasts the certainty that modern educated Europeans have that the witch hunters of Salem were intellectually and morally wrong with their uncertainty that the medieval Mexicans were wrong to sacrifice people to keep the sun going. Or indeed, in some cases, uncertainty that the killers of Christ were wrong. But to return to his distinction between two kinds of scapegoat, there can be ambiguous cases in literature. Shylock in The Merchant of Venice is indeterminately a scapegoat in and of his text. A victim of crassly brutal Christians and a victim of a play which gives them triumph over him. It's up to a director which end of the spectrum to stress more. Anna Karenina is shown to be persecuted by a hypocritical St. Petersburg high society, not because she conducts an affair, that's what many self-respecting aristocratic women and men do, but because she does it in the wrong way, passionately and frankly, not casually and discreetly, and without upsetting her husband too much. Thus far, she is a scapegoat in her text, but a number of discourses suggest that Anna suffers justly, even if the instrument of her punishment, society, is itself decadent. I want now to concentrate on this ambiguity in two of Eliot's women, Annan Bede's Hetty Sorrel and Daniel Deronda's Gwendolyn Harleth. They come from opposite ends of, of Eliot's career, her first and last novels but they have a lot in common. They're young, inexperienced, beautiful, vain, selfish, and ruined by an aristocrat. On the other hand, whereas Hetty is sexual, poorly educated, and indisposed to feel guilt, Gwendolyn is antipathetic to sex, semi-educated, and highly disposed to feel guilt. Hetty is ruined because Arthur doesn't marry her. Gwendolyn is ruined because Grandcourt does. I've already mentioned that Hetty's society is represented as being harsh in its response to her. Eliot protects her in that she chooses to save her from the gallows, even at the expense of a literary cliché, as Arthur gallops up at the twelfth hour with a a communication of sorry, a commutation of her execution to transportation to Australia. This is in contrast to the real woman on on whom Eliot based Hetty's story, Mary Voce, who was hanged for child murder at Nottingham Gallows on the 16th of March, 1802. On the other hand, Hetty might be considered to be an unrealistically selfish 17-year-old. Perhaps she was traumatised before coming to live with the Poisers, but she is almost completely without love for anyone apart from herself and by reflection of self-love, love for Arthur. She feels nothing for children and at times, as a number of critics have pointed out, it seems as though Eliot has created a young egoist in order to destroy her. It is unlikely that those around Hetty would not have noticed when she is eight months pregnant as she is at the time that she runs away from home. If they had noticed, none of the ensuing disasters would have occurred, but the author was determined that they would nonetheless occur. As the critic Haynes notes, whereas Bess, that's the character who is shocked out of vanity by Dinah's sermon, Whereas Bess is brought to her terrified repentance through Dinah's exemplum, Eliot's other women are subjected by the novelist's own plot. Therefore, the novelist is taking Dinah's place as the inspirer of terror. For these reasons, I think that Hetty is, to a certain extent, a scapegoat of as well as in her text. Gwendolyn Harleth is a victim of the risk-taking capitalism which ruins her family. Her punishment for then accepting Grand Court is severe. Haynes comments that creating Gwendolyn as the representative of her society and then according her the duty 
to aspire beyond that society, Eliot, in, in effect, asks of her to reach beyond the limits of her own definition. The women of the novel who do find happiness both happen to have musical talent. Catherine Arrowpoint, who plays the piano, and Myra Lapidoth, who sings. Gwendolyn simply does not have their talent, and she can do no more about this than she can, than she can about the fact that she is not a Jew, which is the one thing that Daniel comes to desire in his wife. Eliot wrote to her publisher Blackwood in November 1875 that it will perhaps be a little comfort to you to know that poor Gwen is spiritually saved, but, quote, so as by fire. Paul tells the Corinthians in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Grand Court serves as her fire, in effect punishing her for accepting him and acting in concert with Daniel to bring about her partial spiritual redemption through suffering. <clears throat> Daniel Deronda's epigraph concerns vengeance, which, quote, or the fairest troop of captured joys breathes pallid pestilence, and therefore let thy chief terror be of thine own soul. Gwendolyn feels the vengeance of her own conscience more than any other character in the novel. I would suggest that she, like Hetty, is also a partial scapegoat of, as well as in, her text. Like Hetty, and unlike Madame Bovary and Anna Karenina, she exists in a novel which is named for the more successful male protagonist. Those of Daniel Deronda's book titles, which do acknowledge Gwendolyn, are either directly critical of her, the spoiled child, or else point out ironies which work against her. In Meeting Streams, Gwendolyn meets Grand Court and Daniel meets Myra, ensuring that Gwendolyn and Daniel's streams will never merge. Maiden's Choosing, another book title, parodies Gwendolyn's acceptance of Grand Court whilst gesturing towards Myra's history of active maidenhood-preserving choice. Gwendolyn gets her choice, sarcastically overstates the free will involved in her acceptance of Grand Court and underlies her resultant loss of choice of any kind. Fruit and Seed contrasts Grand Court's seed, which dies fruitlessly in Gwendolyn, with the new beneficiaries of his past fecundity, his family under the rose, and the anticipated fecundity of Daniel and Myra. However, there is a considerable difference of stature between Gwendolyn in her suffering and Hetty in hers. Hetty, I would argue, is not presented as tragic in any sense that's related to Greek tragedy. Her horizons are too limited. The aesthetic and spiritual context of Hayslope and the novel is Christian, not classical. And Christianity and tragedy have, at best, a difficult relationship. After all, for Christians, life is a divine comedy. The only kind of tragedy which Hetty could be thought of as attaining is described not in Adam Bede, but Daniel Deronda. When Daniel finds Myra about to drown herself in the Thames, quote, his mind glanced over the girl tragedies, that phrase is hyphenated, girl tragedies, that are going on in the world, hidden, unheeded, as if they were but tragedies of the cops or hedgerow, where the helpless drag wounded wings forsakenly. Hetty, who does drag herself about among hedgerows, experiences a girl tragedy, like that of a wounded sparrow. 
Gwendolyn, on the other hand, bears several of the marks of Greek tragedy, which Eliot was re-reading in the original soon before writing Daniel Deronda. Gwendolyn hubristically aspires beyond the conditions of her society, her position as a woman in it, and her life in particular, via mastery in marriage. Her reduction from middling estate by the turn of the roulette wheel, which bankrupts Grapnel and co., provokes her harmatia. On the, night of Anna, uh, sorry, on the night of accepting Grand Court, Gwendolyn experiences a semi-conscious premonition of anagnoresis, the reversal, in, quote, the first onslaught of dread after her irrevocable decision. On her wedding night, her peripatia begins with the arrival of a letter from Mrs. Glacier, which is likened to the arrival of the Furies. Her catastrophe confirms omens, the sudden revelation of a picture of a drowned face, her own comment to her mother that all the great poetic criminals were women. Daniel and Myra have a sense of this tragedy going on. Daniel finds Gwendolyn to have undergone, quote, a tragic transformation whilst Myra feels that genuine grand ladies, such as Gwendolyn, impressed her vaguely as coming out of some unknown drama in which their parts perhaps got more tragic as they went on. The reason why the people closest to Gwendolyn, her family and friends, do not see her as tragic is not only that they are unaware of her situation, they are unable to conceive of what Myra calls great meanings. Myra, when she describes hearing Christian's irreverent laughter at Jews, says that the world seemed like a hell to me. Is this world and all the life upon it only like a farce or vaudeville where you can find no great meanings? Why then are there tragedies and great operas where men do difficult things? The terms comic and comedy are used throughout Daniel Deronda synonymously with Myra's farce or vaudeville. As, for example, in Mrs. Arrowpoint's reaction to Catherine's announcement of her engagement to the musician Klezmer. It is a comedy you have got up, Catherine, else you are mad. It is this society's fault that it can conceive of nothing tragic in Gwendolyn's situation or in anyone's situation. But the text can. Since tragic suffering, by definition, is never wholly just, this resonance mitigates the extent to which Gwendolyn is in fact scapegoated by her text. Now let's think what effect the novel's heroes, in both cases, Adam Bede and Daniel Deronda, have on the heroine. Neither Adam nor Daniel condemns the heroine for what she does, as much as certain other characters, and perhaps not even as much as do the novels themselves. Adam at first refuses to believe that Hetty has done any wrong, and even when he does believe it, he continues to love and support her. Daniel condemns Grand Court. What right had he to marry this girl? said Deronda with disgust, and he pities Gwendolyn far more than he criticises her. He becomes her spiritual guide. And yet, unlike Adam with Hetty, his effects on her are not entirely positive. His attempts to help her give Grand Court sorry, his attempts to help her give Grand Court occasion to punish her, sharpen her sense of her own guilt, and awaken and disappoint her love for him himself. Daniel is highly conscious of his limited ability to help her and of at least some of the pain which he causes her by leaving for Palestine when she is in deep despair. One irony of the novel, of course, is that Daniel meets Gwendolyn for the first time soon after having met Myra, his future wife, for the first time, even though the novel's achronological construction doesn't make this immediately clear. Henry James's Constantius, who is one of three fictional critics whom James creates in his review of the novel Daniel Deronda, suggests that this irony is intentional. 
finding Deronda pre-engaged to go to the east and stir up the race feeling of the Jews strikes me as a wonderfully happy invention. The irony of the situation for poor Gwendolyn is almost grotesque, and it makes one wonder whether the whole heavy structure of the Jewish question was not built up by the author for the express purpose of giving its its proper force to this particular stroke. Constantius is one only of three critics in James's review, but he does voice, I think, part of the truth. In both novels, the treatment of the heroine's suffering is affected by their treatment of the hero's happiness. Alan Bede and Daniel Deronda both end up marrying a woman who is morally superior to Hetty and Gwendolyn, whom they love, and with whom they find great happiness. These marriages take place whilst Hetty and Gwendolyn are still suffering. This is handled in a complex way in both cases. Eliot believed and repeatedly stated that one's happiness and contentment should always be qualified by the consciousness that at any given moment other people are suffering. When Hetty sets off on her doomed journey to find Arthur, the narrator makes the following reflection about the landscape. In foreign countries where the fields and woods have looked to me like our English Loamshire, I have come on something by the roadside which has reminded me that I am not in Loamshire. An image of a great agony. The agony of the cross. It has stood perhaps by the clustering apple blossoms, or in the broad sunshine by the cornfield, or at a turning by the wood where a clear brook was gurgling below. And surely, if there came a traveller to this world who knew nothing of the story of man's life upon it, this image of agony would seem to him strangely out of place in the midst of this joyous nature. He would not know that hidden behind the apple blossoms, or among the golden corn, or under the shrouding boughs of the wood, there might be a human heart beating heavily with anguish. Perhaps a young, blooming girl, not knowing where to turn for refuge from swift advancing shame, understanding no more of this life of ours than a foolish, lost lamb wandering further and further in the nightfall on the lonely heath, yet tasting the bitterest of life's bitterness. Such things are sometimes hidden among sunny fields and behind the blossoming orchards, and the sound of the gurgling brook, if you came close to one spot behind a small bush, would be mingled for your ear with a despairing human sob. No wonder man's religion has so much sorrow in it. No wonder he needs a suffering God. In this case, nature delighting in itself and suffering are simultaneous, and nature neither knows nor cares about Christ's or Hetty's pain. Let's compare this with the timing of the end of Adam Bede. Hetty is tried, condemned, and transported in the spring of 1800 at the end of Book 5. We next see Adam at the beginning of Book 6 in the autumn of 1801. He and Dinah are married at the end of November. The transition from book five to six partly resembles that from act three to act four of Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. Just to remind you of this transition, the first three acts of Winter's Tale resemble Othello. Leontes, king of Sicily, wrongly accuses his wife Hermione of adultery and orders their baby daughter to be left on a deserted beach, shades of Hetty leaving her baby under a tree. The man who is charged with doing this, Antigonus, is filled with pity for the baby which he has to leave, and shortly after he has left her, he famously exits the stage, quote, pursued by bear. He is killed. But just at this moment in the play, the genre of the play switches from tragedy to romantic comedy. The baby is found and adopted by a shepherd. Sixteen years are fast-forwarded by a character called Time, and we next see the flourishing Perdita with her boyfriend Florizel, the shepherd, 
His son, the clown, Autolycus, the peddler, Dorcas and Mopsa, the comic women, enjoying themselves at a bohemian sheep shearing festival. In Adam Bede, we get a transition from Hetty's transportation and Adam's confrontation with Arthur to a quiet scene of milking at the Poyser's farm, shortly followed by a Merry England harvest supper with drinking games. Adam has partly recovered and is able to feel and recognise love for Dinah. The narrator insists that this is not too soon. For Adam, though you see him quite master of himself, working hard and delighting in his work after his inborn, inalienable nature, had not outlived his sorrow, had not felt it slip from him as a temporary burden and leave him the same man again. Do any of us? God forbid. It would be a poor result of all our anguish and wrestling if we won nothing but our old selves at the end of it. If we could return to the same blind loves, the same self-confident blame, the same light thoughts of human suffering, the same frivolous gossip over blighted human lives, the same feeble sense of that unknown towards which we have sent forth irrepressible cries in our loneliness. Let us rather be thankful that our sorrow lives in us as an indestructible force, only changing its form as forces do and passing from pain into sympathy, the one poor word which includes all our best insight and our best love. Not that this transformation of pain into sympathy had completely taken place in Adam yet. There was still a remnant of still a great remnant of pain, and this he felt would subsist as long as her pain was not a memory but an existing thing, which he must think of as renewed with the light of every new morning. But we get accustomed to mental as well as bodily pain without, for all that, losing our sensibility to it. It becomes a habit of our lives. And we cease to imagine a condition of perfect ease as possible for us. Desire is chastened into submission, and we are contented with our days when we have been able to bear our grief in silence and act as though we are not suffering. For it is at such periods that the sense of our lives having visible and invisible relations, beyond any of which either our present or prospective self is the centre, grows like a muscle that we are obliged to lean on and exert. That was Adam's state of mind in this second autumn of his sorrow. A similar slight defensiveness is heard as the narrator describes Adam riding towards Snowfield to ask Dinah to marry him. Something like this sense of enlarged being was in Adam's mind this Sunday morning as he rode along in vivid recollection of the past. His feelings towards Dinah, his hopes of passing his life with her, had been the distant, unseen point towards which that hard journey from Snowfield 18 months earlier had been leading him. Tender and deep as his love for Hetty had been, so deep that the roots of it would never be torn away. His love for Dinah was better and more precious to him, for it was the outgrowth of that fuller life which had come to him from his acquaintance with deep sorrow. In other words, Adam could not have learned to love Dinah had he not suffered as he did for Hetty, just as much as he could not have married Dinah if he he had actually married Hetty. Since Hetty's transportation makes Adam's spiritual growth and wiser marriage possible, she has in fact made a de facto partial atonement to him. The novel continues for 60 pages after Hetty has left it, rather as Anna Karenina continues for its eighth and last book concerning Levin's married life after Anna has committed suicide. Henry James thought that Adam Bede should have ended when Hetty left it. Quote, but as it is, the continuance of the book in Adam's interest is fatal to him. His sorrow at Hetty's misfortune is not a sufficient sorrow for the situation. That his marriage at some future time was quite possible and even natural, I readily admit, but that was matter for a new story. The novel does, as I say, what it can to temper this feeling. In the epilogue, set six years later in June 1807, Dinah has two children. But this is not quite a domestic idyll. 
Almost the last paragraph of the novel contains Adam's speech. It was very cutting when we, that's he and Arthur, first saw one another. He'd never heard about poor Hetty till Mr. Irwin met him in London for the letters missed him on his journey. The first thing he said to me when we got hold of one another's hands was, I could never do anything for her, Adam. She lived long enough for all the suffering, and I'd thought so of the time when I might do something for her. But you told me the truth when you said to me once, there's a sort of wrong that can never be made up for. This is the note on which the novel finishes. Hetty's death in Australia is only just alluded to, being revealed to the reader as part of a report of Adam's conversation with Arthur. But it is there. The last words are Dinah's, Run, Elizabeth, run to meet Aunt Poyser. Come in, Adam, and rest. It has been a hard day for thee. In the context of the paragraph before, she's com- she is actually comforting about Hetty. True to life, life goes on. But the effects of Hetty's life are remembered as a sorrow more than are those of Antigonus killed by a bear. In this respect, too, her scapegoating by her text is perhaps posthumously relieved. I want to compare this with the last book of Daniel Deronda. Whereas Adam Bede allows an 18-month standoff between Hetty's departure and Adam's proposal to Dinah, in Daniel Deronda there is, for Gwendolyn, painful simultaneity between her greatest distress and Daniel's greatest happiness. Grand Court, the husband, is killed in July 1866 at the end of Book 7. Daniel is on hand to comfort her. But the reason why he was, coincidentally, in Genoa at the same time was to meet the mother who had abandoned him as a child and therefore Gwendolyn is widowed just after Daniel has found out that he is a Jew. On his return to England, he gets engaged to Myra almost immediately. Over the next few weeks, he visits and counsels Gwendolyn, but does not immediately tell her that he is engaged. During this last book of the novel, which follows without a break in time, Gwendolyn fades fast. Of the book's 13 chapters, Daniel appears in eight and Gwendolyn in only three, mainly in conversation with him. She falls silent. She's often present at the conversation of others, but she doesn't speak. She falls asleep. She's prone to taking sleeping droughts. Prone. Her last appearance in the novel is lying in bed. And finally she ends up two-dimensional. Her last presence in the novel is in a letter. At the end of book seven, she is left, quote, in hysterical crying. She was found this way, crushed on the floor. Such grief seemed natural in a poor lady whose husband has been drowned in her presence. The last line has more than a hint of comedy, since, of course, Gwendolyn is not crying for Grand Court, and it therefore prepares the transition to the following scene. This, I think, somewhat resembles the transition performed in the stage direction Exit Pursued by Bear when read in The Winter's Tale, as comedy chases tragedy off the stage. Remember that The Winter's Tale has already appeared in the novel when Gwendolyn plays the part of Hermione in the Tableau Vivant at Offendine. Here, the scene moves from Gwendolyn on the floor to the faint murmurs of the garden on a July afternoon with Gascoigne, his flourishing son Rex and the Davilo girls. Gascoigne is engaged in peaceful authorship living in the air of the fields and downs of two ecclesiastical articles which hardly anyone reads. The Mayricks accept the drowning of Gwendolyn still more easily than the clown and the shepherd accept the drowning of the Sicilian ship's crew in the eating of Antigonus, immediately turning their attention to things newborn in speculation on Gwendolyn's possible children by her first or a future second marriage. In fact, the novel's Hermione, Gwendolyn, is not revived, but, as on the occasion of her acting, is left partially paralysed by horror. The narrator, in a similarly alienating intervention as that made by Time in The Winter's Tale, reflects on the year's experience which had turned the brilliant, self-confident Gwendolyn Harleth 
of the archery meeting into the crushed penitent impelled to confess her unworthiness where it would have been her happiness to have been held worthy. This transition both dulls the resonance of Gwendolyn's tragedy and stresses the failure of its conversion into a tragic comedy, at least in the short term. The tranquil family life to which Gwendolyn returns offers a long-term chance of rehabilitation for her. On his fourth visit to her after Grandcourt's death, Daniel tells her that he's emigrating to Palestine. Gwendolyn guesses his situation and says, but can you marry? Yes, said Deronda, also in a low voice. I am going to marry. At first there was no change in Gwendolyn's attitude. She only began to tremble visibly. Then she looked before her with dilated eyes as at something lying in front of her, till she stretched her arms out straight and cried with a smothered voice, I said I should be forsaken. I have been a cruel woman and I have been forsaken. She passes a terrible night. Then on the next morning she speaks her last words in the novel. Her bleak assertion to her mother that... I shall live. I shall be better. At the beginning of the next chapter, the narrator effuses that among the blessings of love, there is hardly one more exquisite than the sense that in uniting the beloved life to ours, we can watch over its happiness. This sentence, which aims to inflect Daniel's marriage to Myra with ethical responsibility for the world in general, necessarily also emphasizes the case that Daniel will no longer be watching over Gwendolyn. The epigraph, which separates the two chapters, voices the following sentiment. In the checkered area of human experience, the seasons are all mingled. In the same moment... The sickle is reaping and the seed is sprinkled. This attempts to mediate between Gwendolyn's disaster and Daniel's happiness by claiming that their cotemporality is typical and implying in its second sentence, nay, in each of our lives, harvest and springtime are continually one until death himself gathers us and sows us anew in his invisible fields trying to imply that Gwendolyn's bitter emotional harvest may also be her spiritual spring. But the latter suggestion is faint, and the former suggestion is of no comfort to Gwendolyn. Crucially, Myra knows nothing about her marriage's effect on Gwendolyn, whereas Dinah knows that Adam is thinking about Hetty. During Adam's wedding to Dinah, quote, there was a tinge of sadness in his deep joy, Dinah knew it and did not feel aggrieved. Myra, on the other hand, quote, knew nothing of Hans's struggle, Hans was in love with her too, or of Gwendolyn's pang. So when the bridal veil was around Myra, it hid no doubtful tremors. One point which partially qualifies Daniel's comedy is that the Jewish people is itself presented as a tragic protagonist throughout the novel. In the extract from Sunz's Di Synagogale Poesie des Mittelalters, which appears as the epigraph to chapter 42, Jewish history is described as, quote, a national tragedy lasting for 1,500 years. Jewish messianism and potentially the Zionism to which Daniel and Myra devote themselves are projected to redeem this tragedy sooner or later as a comedy. But it hasn't happened yet, and since Zionism was a highly speculative project in the 1870s, Eliot didn't know that it was going to happen, or that she would have streets named after her in Israel. But the gushing depiction of the marriage is not directly concerned with this. It's concerned with individuals more than people. The velvet canopy never covered a more goodly bride and bridegroom to whom their people might more wisely wish offspring. More truthful lips never touched the sacrament marriage wine. The marriage blessing never gathered stronger promise of fulfilment than in the integrity of their mutual pledge. Gwendolyn, on the other hand, is damned both as an individual and as a representative of the Gentile society which the Jewish plot of the novel, on the whole, serves to criticise. After the end of her letter to Daniel on his wedding day, the next paragraph begins, 
The preparations for the departure of all three to the east began at once. Although this is separated by a semicolon from the ostensible reason, for Deronda could not deny Ezra, that's Myra's brother's wish, the effect of reading is that Gwendolyn's letter hastens their departure to the Middle East. All of this makes Gwendolyn seem, I think, more of a scapegoat of her text than Hetty, but it should be observed that, unlike Adam Bede, the novel Daniel Deronda does not outlast its heroine. When Daniel and Gwendolyn part company, the novel can't carry on. Raymond Williams considers that, in Women in Love by Lawrence and Anna Karenina, an important relationship ends in tragedy in a death given significance by the whole action. By the coexistence of these other relationships, the tragic relationship has been given a context. In this important but limited sense, a society has been formed around the tragic experience. In Hetty's case, I would conclude, this applies partially. Of course, by virtue of being deported, she's also been removed from society. But the suffering which her suffering inflicts on others is presented as having a positive outcome in her home society. Her society remembers her, and it also carries on. In Daniel Deronda, it's the other way round. It's the comic couple that moves away and takes away the contextualisation of Gwendolyn's disaster. Gwendolyn's own society is never quite able to understand what happened to her. This difference correlates to the fact that Loamshire society is, for all its faults, essentially benign, whereas the Gentile English society of Daniel Deronda is presented as moribund. Comedies take place outside of it, tragedies sink without trace within it. Henry James criticised endings which were a distribution at the last of prizes, pensions, husbands, wives, babies, appended paragraphs and cheerful remarks. Both Adam Bede and Daniel Deronda do distribute prizes, husbands, wives and real or highly likely babies. Both therefore also strive to offer non-cheerful and sobering remarks. In Adam Bede, these remarks strive to, and to some extent do, reconcile Hetty's suffering with the growth of new happiness. Daniel Deronda, on the other hand, is aware that it does not quite succeed in reconciling the disparate fates of Gwendolyn and Daniel. Both novels contain transitions which remind us of A Winter's Tale, but both resolutely refuse and know that they are refusing to be tragic comedies. Thank you.